Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This edition of The Intersection is being released during Thanksgiving weekend, and I had a chance recently to chat with Jerry Newcomb of D. James Kennedy Ministries, who provided a closer look at the mindset of the pilgrims, including their spiritual approach. And pro-life speaker Mark Newman, who is involved with movie Bible study and more, spoke with me recently about communicating the pro-life message effectively. And on this edition of The Intersection, perhaps you've heard the story of Isabella Chow, a Christian student at the University of California at Berkeley, who took a strong stand on a biblical view of sexuality in her capacity in the student government. She faced opposition, including from her own party. You'll be hearing some of her comments. Then, some biblical perspective on continuing to be used of God during the years commonly known as the retirement years. You'll be hearing from longtime retirement planner Bruce Brinesma, one of the leaders of the Retirement Reformation. Finally, it's noted author and speaker Jennifer Kennedy Dean of the Praying Life Foundation, who has compiled a book of prayers designed to coincide with the Christmas season, helping believers to focus more effectively on drawing closer to Christ. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Jerry Newcomb is an author and columnist who is senior producer and on-air host for D. James Kennedy Ministries. He provided some insight on the journey of the pilgrims to what is now America and discussed some of their spiritual perspective. He's written the book, American Amnesia, Is America Paying the Price for Forgetting God, the Source of Our Liberty? Here now is Jerry Newcomb. This is an, an interesting fact about the Mayflower itself. The Mayflower had about 102 human beings on it, 102. There were 50 or so pilgrims, and pilgrims, by the way, were members of a particular Christian congregation that had formed in England, but because of persecution had left and gone to Holland, and this uh, congregation wanted to come over to America now that they found that Jamestown was a permanent settlement. Uh, they, they thought, well, maybe if we can go to the northern parts of Virginia, we can have our own settlement. We can worship Jesus in purity and peace without getting harassed by the government and so forth. And so that was what their goal was. Now, they also had not only 50 of the pilgrims on board that ship, there was also about 8 to 10 or something like that crew members uh, that were just dedicated to the Mayflower itself, and uh, they were going back, and, you know, they did go back to England, and once the spring thawed out and everything, and the Mayflower could go back to England. But in the meantime, there were also about 25 or so men, only men, that were hired as strangers. That was a term used for them. So, in fact, some people have said that the Mayflower consisted of saints, and strangers. These strangers were people who were members of, of the Church of England, uh, which the pilgrims were not, but they were, they were dedicated Christians in their own way, and they all had a skill. Each one was hired for a particular skill. So, for example, uh, Miles Standish was hired because he was a soldier, and so he was their policeman, their security guard, their their army, all rolled up in one human being, <laughs> one man. And then there was uh, John Alden, who was a barrel maker. He was a cooper. That's what the word means, cooper. So anyway, so they had these hired men. Now, here's what happened. When the pilgrims, before they even set one foot on dry land, you know, in, in the New World, 
before they did that, they heard rumors that some of the men aboard, in other words, some of the strangers, wanted to strike out on their own because they were not under any government's jurisdiction. They were in no man's land, if you will. And um, it was like, well, I'm not under the king's domain here. Uh, you know, we're, we're on our own. So the pilgrims decided to go ahead and write up a binding compact, a binding agreement, a covenant, if you will, designed essentially after the biblical concept of covenant, and, uh, where you, you basically make an agreement between human beings under God, with God, but human beings together. And so this Mayflower Compact became the first step in the process of ultimately our two key founding documents as a nation, the Declaration of Independence, 1776, and the U.S. Constitution, 1787. Now, the Mayflower Compact begins in the name of God. Amen. And it, it says, these are parts of the words, We whose names are underwritten, having undertaken a voyage for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, do covenant and combine ourselves into a civil body politic. And uh, I've obviously left out some of the detailed words like, you know, loyal subjects of the King James, dread this, dread that. Anyway, uh, bottom line is this agreement for the Mayflower, of the Mayflower, uh, you know, men, the, the, the pilgrims, basically, they got everybody, all the men, obviously not the crew members, but they got all the men to sign it. There were about something for, like 40 signatories or whatever for the Mayflower coming. Bottom line is... This agreement for self-government was like a covenant. It bound each person to another. It created a civil body politic. We're still talking about civil body politics. And what's most important about the Mayflower Compact is that it was the first of about 100 or so contracts, compacts, frames of government, charters, different Christian documents that were written up by pilgrims and then later Puritans and Quakers and so forth, that were uniquely using the biblical concept of covenant in order to create a colony out of whole cloth, and it paved the way uh, to our key founding document. So as, as one historian puts it, uh, that's Donald Lutz of the University of Houston, he said, essentially what happens is we whose names are underwritten eventually morphs into we the people. Jerry Newcomb here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website jerrynewcomb.com. -E Next up, it's Mark Newman, president of Speaker for Life. He's also been involved in movie Bible study set to relaunch in 2019. Recently, he and I discussed aspects of the pro-life message and how to communicate it effectively. From that conversation, this is Mark Newman. Well, the first thing we have to do is recognize that we're actually in a, in a spiritual battle here, that yeah. this is not a political issue, it's not a medical issue. Babies are not tumors. Pregnancy is not a disease, right? But this is the model that we're being taught. So instead, what we have to do is recognize that we are in a, a, a real spiritual battle here. And that what's going on is really nothing shy of uh, of modern-day Molech worship. And I think when you put the name on it, a lot of times people, they recoil from it and they think, oh my gosh, it really can't be that bad. And yet if you take a look in the Old Testament, you look at uh, the high places that existed all around Jerusalem, even during the time of, the, of temple worship, and you see that, that ancient Israelites would take people, take their children up and sacrifice them to Molech. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Solomon himself, his wives, sacrificed his children 
to Molech. And God describes this as that detestable thing, which I never entered my mind that they should do it. And so what they did is, you know, they, they had a God in Israel. They wanted to go down and they, they could inquire of the God, uh, inquire of the Jehovah God in Israel. Um, but, you know, this was a God you couldn't make, make bargains with. It's a God you, you needed to obey. Well, sometimes you, you knew what he was going to say and you didn't want that. So right. you would go up to the high places and you would meet with a priest or priestess up there and, uh, and they would uh, take your petition to their God and what you had to pay in order to get a favorable answer, which you had to pay with the life of your child. Mm. So they, in the scripture, they call it passing your children through the fire. And this is not like passing your finger through a flame. They literally mean offering up your children to the fire. So the, the, uh, the high priest of Molech would kill the child, cut the child up, place it on a brazier, and incinerate it. It is literally identical to the same thing which goes on at, at Planned Parenthood, where a woman comes in, she counsels because she has a problem, they tell her that they can solve her problem. The way they solve their problem is they have to bring their baby. They, she goes in. She lays down on a stainless steel table. They take out instruments that have been specifically designed for this purpose. They go in and they take that baby out piece by piece and nine times out of ten incinerate it. It's literally, it's identical. So even though it doesn't say First Church of Molech over your Planned Parenthood, um, if something walks like a duck and flaps like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So I think the first thing we have to recognize is the nature, the spiritual nature of the battle. And I can't think of a story that that um, that illustrates this any more than uh, there was a sidewalk counselor for a, a pregnancy resource center, and this uh, this counselor, after a while, got to know the abortionist who worked at the abortion clinic because she was counseling girls who were coming in trying to get her, get the girls to go over to a pregnancy resource center. Over time, she talked with the uh, the abortionist, inviting him to just at least come to church. And one day he looked at her and he said, Mary, I'll tell you what, I will come to your church. I will start coming to your church as soon as your church stops coming to me. I want you to think about the spiritual gauntlet Mm. this guy was throwing down. He was saying that your church says that you have all the answers to life. It comes out of that book that you read. I'm telling you that my God, the God that the abortionist represents, is stronger than your God, the God the Christians represent. Because they don't have all the answers. Your people, your Christian people, they come to me for life's answers. And I give them to them by taking the lives of their children. The sooner we can recognize that this is the nature of the battle that we're in, the better. Now, just to be really, really clear, right? Some people say, well, the reasons why Christians don't get involved in this is because they overreact. And I'll be honest, you and I both know there have been clinics that have been bombed. There have been doctors that have been shot. And I have to let you know right now, let's be abundantly clear. You can never accomplish God's work with the tools of the devil. These are not the tools we've we've been offered. And... Never once has anyone who has perpetrated those crimes, let's call them what they are, have they, they've never once been affiliated with any pro-life organization. They're always guys who've gone off the deep end for reasons we may or may not ever find out. Nevertheless, if we understand the nature of our adversary, understand the nature of what's going on, and by the way, it's a blood money business. These people make tremendous amounts of money by killing these children. We need to find a way to respond. Now, research that we have demonstrates that upwards of 70% of women seeking abortions have some at least loose affiliation with either a Catholic or a Protestant church. Um, some of the m- most recent research indicates that with 40 to 50% of women walking into abortion clinics have been inside a church within the last month. We need to have uh, a chance to reach them. Most women, from the moment they find out they're pregnant till the time they schedule and go in and have an abortion, usually you have about a 10-day window to reach those women. And that is where um, supporting your local pregnancy resource center, in this case, uh, First Choice uh, Medical uh, Women's Medical Center, 
this is the place where we as the church can support and provide the antidote to the uh, pro-abortion mentality that uh, seems rife throughout America. Mark Newman here on The Intersection. His website address is speakerforlife.com. This is The Intersection podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through the website meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the Intersection podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can find the Intersection podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more through faithradio.org. And through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs, One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. And you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. I spoke recently with Isabella Chow, a senator with the Associated Students of the University of California. She took a strong stand on a biblical view of sexuality in her capacity in the student government, resulting in opposition, including from her own party. From that conversation, this is Isabella Chow. Title IX deals with sexual assault on campuses, and this bill was largely symbolic, and it uh, wanted to put forth a stance of, of the Associated Students of the University of California. And essentially, it was opposing a certain clause in the Department of Education's proposed changes, um, which would define a person's gender as their biological sex. And for me, most of that bill I actually agreed with because most of that bill was just, you know, very supportive language that opposed discrimination and harassment against LGBTQ individuals and specifically transgender individuals. And as a Christian, I have absolutely no problem advocating for you know, freedom from discrimination and harassment for anyone, and especially people who, you know, are more marginalized in the society. But where that bill crossed the line for me was that certain clauses in the bill that I had to vote for asked me to promote certain organizations like the Queer Alliance Resource Center here on campus, whose primary purpose is to promote an LGBTQ identity and lifestyle. And to me, promoting that identity and lifestyle is very different from saying that every person, and especially LGBTQ individuals, should have basic human rights. The reaction that I got was very unexpected. The backlash was very swift um, to the extent that over the next three days, we had multiple meetings and I was eventually told, you either have to fully support this bill and fully affirm the LGBTQ identity, or you have to leave the party. And in my conscience and before God and before my community, I couldn't say that this was something I could fully support. And so um, the next night during voting, um, right after the vote, Student Action released their press statement disaffiliating with me. And the other, another senator who sponsored the bill that I abstained from also released a statement, essentially um, quoting very specific parts of what I said on the Senate floor and calling me a bigot, 
a hater, transphobic, and queerphobic senator. And so you were disassociated, disavowed, if you will, as it's been reported by your party that you had run with for this Senate position, but you were not removed from your Senate position. And really, you took that stand, I understand, because of your you had basically set yourself up and you had actually said it on the front end of our conversation as being a voice for the Christians on campus at UC Berkeley. So because of Mm -hmm. the way that you had presented yourself, it would be actually, of course, first of all, because of your adherence to biblical truth, but also because of promises made to your constituents on campus that this is something that would be inconsistent with what they had entrusted you to do, right? Yes, for sure. And I actually dialogued with multiple campus leaders, um, alumni, and even pastors since last semester about, you know, the LGBTQ issue in general and about this, these specific bills. And yeah, I wanted to stay true to my word about, you know, what I would vote for and what I believed, and to represent my community, the Christian community here well. So something that, that you mentioned earlier, and I said we'd come back to it, with respect to your view of those who claim to be LGBTQ on campus and your beliefs as a Christian. You had, you'd been quoted on the Campus Reform website as saying that this misunderstanding really comes out of that, that tension because we are called to love all people, but we don't have to endorse their lifestyle. So see, or, or share how you see those, those elements working together. Yes. So for me as a Christian, I don't see a fundamental conflict between saying to my LGBTQ friends, I love you, and yet I'm not able to fully endorse um, your sexual identity. But to the LGBTQ community, their sexual identity is so tied to who they are that they cannot reconcile how I can purport to you know, love, accept, and validate them, and yet not fully agree or promote, um, you know, their sexual identities and lifestyles. And so because they're unable to reconcile that, they've essentially said, your words about love and acceptance are completely worthless. Um, Because you believe that, one, God created male and female, and two, God designed sex to be between a marriage between a male and a female, we're going to take that as invalidating to us and trying to erase our identities And we're going to call you a bigot and hater because there's no way you can possibly love us and still say these things. Isabella Chow here on The Intersection. Her Facebook page is facebook.com front slash Senator Chow, C-H-O-W. Next on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Bruce Brinesma. He was founder and has served as CEO of Envoy Financial. He shared his perspective based on biblical principles about how God desires to use Christians even during what are termed the retirement years. He's one of the leaders of the Retirement Reformation. Here now is Bruce Brinesma. As a Christian community, and, and when we talk about that, we're really talking about the baby boomers and the silent generation and, and some of the Gen X. And, and we're talking about a group of up to maybe best numbers I can have, like 32 million people. So, I mean, there's a lot of people in this category. And what we've learned is that the majority of Christians have adopted and adapted to what the culture says, this thing we call retirement. 
And what the culture says is that, first of all, it's one homogeneous period. It, the key things about it is that it's downhill physically and mentally. Then you die. And, what, and, and success is jamming as much leisure as you possibly can into those intervening years. Well, there's a whole bunch of lies that are in there, and, and we have bought into them. First of all, when we, it, it, it comes out of the understanding that the issues of longevity are ones that are new to our generations. When I was young, people worked to 65 and they died at 67 or maybe 70 and they were really old. Now retirement is more like a 30-year period. Think about that. Wow. The 30 yeah. Here, period. It's the same time, Bob, as the as the time between age 20 and age 50. Now you just think back and you say, "Oh my goodness!" If you're over 50 and listening to this broadcast, you know what all changes happened in your life and your family between 20 and 50. Oh my goodness, it was huge. Why in the world would we believe that there aren't the same amount of change? It may be different change, but the same amount that's going to happen between 60 and 90 between 65 and 95, between 70 and 100. Matter of fact, just to kind of put a cap on this part of our conversation, I came across this statistics the other day, and it, it kind of blew me away. Americans under 18 will outnumber though by those who are over 60 in 2019. That's next year. Americans under 18 will be outnumbered by those who are over 60 next year, and by wow. those over 65, by 2035. So it's a huge issue. So if you've got a huge issue, and you've got all these years, and you don't really have a biblical perspective of what in the world that means during those years, you in fact take leisure, and it becomes your goal. It becomes your purpose. It becomes your reality. And that couldn't be further from the way that I read my Bible. As you see it, you talk about the um, the principles of Scripture what do you see as perhaps God's call for people during their retirement years? Well, it kind of gets pretty simple. God either has got a plan for your life or he doesn't. Sure. If God's got a plan for your life, you figure that he just said, well, I, I, it, it's too big a job for me. And so I think it at about 65, I'm going to cut it off. So there's not going to be a plan for after 65. I don't think that's the way it works. I think God's got a plan for us for our whole life and that a leisure life entitlement is not part of the picture. Some leisure, some rest, some, some you know, those kinds of things are clearly part of, of, of living a full life, even no matter what your age is. But a leisure life entitlement is not part of it. And the difference between age and old it's really a matter of attitude and understanding. So let's think about it for just a second. If, in fact, we have, what is it that we put on a pedestal? We put youth and we put activity. And we say those are the key things that are the measurements of a successful, of an enjoyable, of a fulfilled life. A fulfilled life. If you say, what happens as a result of age? Well, whether we look in the, in the Bible or in our own experience, the combination of those things shows us that because of all of our experience, we're much wiser when we're older than we were when we are younger. So, in fact, we are minimizing wisdom, maximizing 
activity and losing the benefits of being able to amalgamate both into a life of purpose. Bruce Brinesma here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website retirementreformation.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's the executive director of the Praying Life Foundation, Jennifer Kennedy-Dean. She shared about the concept and some of the content of her devotional book, Pursuing the Christ, Prayers for Christmas Time. From that rather timely conversation, this is Jennifer Kennedy-Dean. You know, one thing I love to do, when we read Scripture, and we're very familiar with it, so when we read a story, we already know how the story ends. But what if you didn't? What if you were experiencing it in real time? What if this was happening to you and you don't know how the story ends? So I try to just, like, put myself in. What would that have been like? And I think, just for example... Think about Mary, who was uh, just an ordinary girl leading an ordinary life, having ordinary expectations. She's, she's betrothed to Joseph. She's been training all of her life for how to be a good wife and be a good mother. And, and that is her highest expectation. And all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, God interrupts her life with a call that, that's beyond her imagination. And, and as, as, uh, as the angel proclaims to her what that call on her life is, she says, how could this be? Which, as I think about that question, I think about, what if God tried to explain to her how this mm. could be? It would be like trying to explain to me the most complex uh, mathematical <laughs> theory, which I would never grasp, no matter how well you explained it. So God doesn't answer her with how could this be. He answered her with who he is. And, and so I, just, I, I uh, just looked at Mary and imagined at that moment. And this, so what a, what a high. When that, when that penetrates her consciousness, every Jewish virgin hoped to be the mother of the Messiah. But it's going to be little Mary. And, and when that begins to dawn on her... Then the next thing that happens in, in the scenario is that her betrothed considers putting her away privately. Imagine that period of time when she got that news until God changed everything. Imagine what she must have thought during that time. God, wow, where I thought everything would run smoothly because you've called me to this big call. So I, that's how I did. I just, I just tried to explore the moments and think through them in ways that maybe we haven't thought through them before. And I understand that you devote quite a bit of the book to, as we might say, the, the personality of, of Jesus, who he is, who he came to be. You deal with some of the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament, which is always something that I like to, to look at and consider. So from, from actually encountering this book, Pursuing the Christ, what are some of the things that people can really learn about Jesus yeah, and and one thing is that uh, Jesus came to express to us who God is, and and the amazing thing is that when when the when the King of Heaven, when Heaven's darling came to Earth to express to us who God is, He came in the form of a little bitty baby, and not just that, but a little bitty baby on a little planet in a little country in a little village in a little person, just how how uh how incognito he snuck into 
the affairs of earth. And, and we begin to see how God uses the small to create the large. There's no such thing as big if there's not a whole lot of small. And you, and, you know, and, and you look at your own life and you go, the small moments, it's the little things where God is almost incognito in my life. Oh, I didn't recognize you there. Who hmm. would have recognized the in-the-beginning God lying in a manger in a pile of hay? And, and you see how the way that God expresses himself through Jesus is what he wants you to know about him. It's what he wants you to understand about him. When heaven makes the grand birth announcement, like the, the birth announcement is so huge that he's not going to send it through prophets. He's going to make the, uh, the, the grand birth announcement from heaven itself and who does he make it to he makes it to shepherds and and when that and when the shepherds come to find the messiah the long-awaited king of kings he's going to be in a place that they recognize oh i feel comfortable in a in a stable this is where i'm at home i know these smells i know how to act in a stable i just find that I just find that fascinating hmm. that God comes to us, whoever we are, wherever we are, and makes the announcement of Jesus, not in some way that is foreign to us, but some way that we look at and go, oh, I see. I see. He came for me. Jennifer Kennedy Dean here on The Intersection. The Foundation website is prayinglife.org. We're nearing the end of this edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection Podcast is available through the Faith Radio app. You can find out more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting faithradio.org. And through the Beating House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Beating House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there is a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this Thanksgiving weekend edition of The Intersection. I'm Bob Crittenden.